Hi, I'm a traditional Christian. Hi, I'm a North. Hey, 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 you're not a Christian. Where's your suit? Where's your tie? I, I, don't, I don't need a suit. I look good like this. No, you're, you're not a Christian. You you can't come to church without a tie on. What, what's wrong with oh, you? Um, isn't it a little dark in here? I feel like it's a little dark. In yeah, here. it's a little dark, but I like it. I like what they've done here. You know, the stage set up, the lights, everything looks so cool in here. I, I like it. Uh, I like it. I, I don't know. I think it's a little worldly. I, I think all we need is the glory and the presence and the fire of God. Yeah, that's good, but I don't think the lights and what's on here really takes away from that. Well, it bothers my eyes, and, and I can't see Jesus. Anyway, um, uh, what did you do today to, like, earn, you know, God's favor and God's heart? What did you do yeah. to, to, to earn or to, or to please to God to, uh, today? Yeah, yeah, what did you do? You know, I, I don't think you did much, you know, just by looking at you. But, but you know, let me tell you what I did so you can see the, the lifestyle of, of a real Christian. You know, I got up this morning, I opened up my Bible. Look, I even got it highlighted here. I read, I read Psalms and, you know, highlighted it, colored it, made it look nice. Um, and, and then right after I read it, I just sent 10 of my friends a text message. Oh, this wow. same verse, you know, just speaking the word of God through my cell phone, you know. And then after that, I saw my, my neighbor. He's a little old. He was outside shoveling, you know. And I saw him there. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to share this word with him. And, and I went and I, I shared this Psalms. And then, you know, the whole day I've just been doing things for God to, to earn his love for me, to, for, for him to feel, you know, that, that, that I acknowledge okay. him. And, and, you know, I've just been doing things, you know, because yeah, yeah. you, you have to do things for God, you know. What do you do for God? No, I don't, I don't think you necessarily have to do things for God because that's why Jesus paid it all. And, you know, yeah, I do some of the things he said, read my mm -hmm. word and pray. Yeah. But I don't think you have to earn God. That's why Jesus died on the cross for us. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's not a Christian. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? Yeah. Which guy were you? <laughs> All right. Um, if you're a new guest this morning, you want to know we are taking a break from our uh, typical book of the Bible sermon series and our occasional topical sermon series. And for the spring months, we are doing a seven-part doctrinal sermon series. Uh, specifically, we are looking at what is called in Latin the Ordo Salutis, which is just the fancy way of saying the order of salvation. How did it happen? That's the question we're asking. How is it that, that broken people are brought from a place far from God to a place where we are in relationship with God. Um, the Bible unpacks for us seven steps, seven distinct doctrines. Um, I don't want you to think of these just as chronological progression because some of them are kind of happening all at the same time. Think more in terms of a logical progression. Um, it is true that salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but it is a gift to the guilty. How does God bestow that gift? According to the, the Bible, what does God do? What are the different things God does? What do we do? Um, that's what this series is about. So for this morning, we're considering a huge doctrine, enormous in its implications, and it's called simply one word, justification. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, um, monk turned reformer, he said, justification is the article by which the church stands or 
falls. Justification was discovered by uh, um, uh, Martin Luther for, for his part in the book of Romans. But for this morning, we're not going to go right to a Pauline epistle, a, 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 one of Paul's letters. Instead, I want to go to one of Jesus's parables and start there. So uh, if you would turn to Luke chapter 18 in the New Testament, Luke chapter 18. This is page 877 in the church Bibles. If you went to Sunday school, if you grew up in the church, then you probably know that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Earthly stories with heavenly meanings. It's not the most sophisticated definition, but it's as good a definition, I think, as you'll find. Um, Parables are simply simple stories with really big truths. The challenge when we come to the parables, and particularly this morning's, here it is. We are accustomed from grade school to reading Aesop's fables and finding the moral truth within them, right? So for instance, in the parable that we're about to read here, we're all gonna determine, okay, the moral truth appears to be that we should be humble in prayer and not cocky. Sound good? Absolutely that sounds good. Is that what the parable teaches? I think that's in there, certainly. But here's the thing. When it comes to Jesus' parables, there is always, in one way or another, a sting in the tail. T-A-L-E, okay? And the the sting in the tale that Jesus tells here is, it's it's in a spot where we kind of least expect it. That's how actually most of the parables work. The sting is where we least expect it to be. Let me show you what I mean. Um, Luke 18, we'll start reading at the ninth verse. Hear now the very word of the Lord. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus ends the reading of God's word. It's not that long a parable. It's not that hard to understand on the surface anyway. You got two men, you got two prayers, and you got two destinations. It's called the, Pharisee, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, or the tax collector. Um, and if you've been in church world for very long, then you know that when we think of the Pharisees, the first things that come to mind are things like really, really harsh and really, really legalistic. And you're not wrong, um, but check it out. In Jesus' day, when he was telling this parable, remember, we always got to build a bridge back, step into the context. When Jesus was telling this parable, the, the Pharisees were widely considered to be the guys in the white hats, okay? These were the guys 
ostensibly, who were striving to do good. Here's their history in a nutshell, if you're interested in this sort of thing. Well, many centuries before, uh, the Assyrians had invaded Israel and uh, did, done all kinds of bad things, but there was a, a group of Israelites who refused to bow down to the Syrian gods. They were holy, or the Hasidic Jews. At the same time, a different group called the Maccabees rose up, and they actually were the ones who won the war against the Syrians, but then the Maccabees became corrupt. And so now, out of this group of Hasidic Jews, you have a group called the Pure Ones, the Purissim, or to our ears, the Pharisees. The point of all that is that by the time we get to Jesus' day, first century, they are now a highly regarded segment but one of several segments in Jewish society. For instance, we got the Sadducees. We're familiar with them, right? Sadducees, those were the liberals. They didn't believe in the uh, miracles. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in afterlife. We don't really identify very well with the Sadducees. And then you've got the zealots. Those were the ones who immediately went to their weapons. They were ultra-violent. We don't, we, we, we don't really identify with them either. At least we shouldn't really identify with them. And then you got the Essenes. Those were kind of, that was kind of a monkish group. They um, sort of wanted to separate from society altogether, communes out in the desert, that sort of thing. We don't really identify with them. And then you have the Pharisees. And church, doctrinally, we believe a lot of things that they believed. Socially, we do not separate ourselves from the world. In fact, we talk all the time here about living on mission in the world. Politically, Uh, We, too, strongly reject violence for religious ends. Point is, most of us here, in one way or another, kind of go shopping at Pharisees R Us. So you can appreciate, maybe. When, When you get out of the mindset that, oh, those are just the bad guys and we're the good guys. But you can appreciate in the moment how jarring it would be that at the end of this tale... There's a sting. Jesus essentially says at the end that it's the good guy. That's the guy who's spiritually empty. That's not, that's not how we begin. We begin kind of mundane. Start of the story is common. Verse 10, the two men went up into the temple to pray. Nothing surprising there. Standard fair Judaism. One was a Pharisee. Still pretty mundane. That's what Pharisees did after all. They prayed. And the other a tax collector. Hmm. Well, that would have raised a few eyebrows. That would have lifted the chins. Because publicans were typically um, mentioned alongside adulterers and prostitutes. Because publicans, their thing was cheating their own people. Pastor Don did a nice job kind of unpacking what that looked like for us last week when we were looking at Zacchaeus. But, But the tax collector's main sense Okay, their, their primary sin. It wasn't just that they cheated people. It wasn't just that they cheated their own people. It's that they cheated their own people in collusion with the enemy. They were employed by the Romans, the very people that the Israelites hated most because it was an occupying army in their own land. 
tax collectors were Roman lackeys. So if you're listening to the story, you're thinking, so what is that guy doing praying at temple? Well, hold on, Jesus says. I just, I just mentioned him to get your attention. <laughs> we'll get back to him. But first, let's look at the Pharisee. Verse 11, he's standing to pray, as he would have been taught to do, by himself. Well, he would not, I don't think he would have thought of himself as arrogant or self-righteous. He most definitely would have thought of himself as separate, you know, a cut above. He is purissime, after all, one of the pure ones. And then, if you were paying attention to his prayer that he offers, is basically his resume. <laughs> he proclaims to God, I can count out three levels of obedience that, that should commend him to God. Number one, there's negative obedience. That's the end of verse 11. I'm not unjust. No adultery here. No, no extortion here. You ever do this? Comfort yourself with all the sins that you have not committed? which is really just a smokescreen, so you don't have to confront all the sins that you have committed. And we go from negative obedience, then the prayer moves in verse 12 to describing legalistic obedience, all the ways that he has met or exceeded the letter of the law. For instance, Deuteronomy said that we needed to fast one day on the day of atonement in old Israel. Well, he says, hey, I fast twice a week. (laughs) The Old Testament law said you had to tithe to 10% of your crop, he says, I tithe on everything. So I'm not just net, gross too. (laughs) And then finally, maybe the most damning of all, after we go from negative obedience to legalistic obedience, we have comparative obedience. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, even this tax collector. That's That's the prayer. He lists out, basically he says, these are the three ways I'm kind of awesome. (laughs) 33 words, that's how long it takes him in English. The publican's prayer is going to be seven. Out of those 33 words, five of them are self-referential eyes. One time he mentions God. Never does he confess his sin. Never does he request forgiveness. In other words, the Pharisee was full of himself, while the publican emptied himself. And then there's an author named Robert Capon, and he describes it like this. In come these two characters. Pharisee walks over, pulls up a chair to God's table, and whips out a pack of cards. He fans them, bridges them, does a couple one-handed cuts, and an accordion shuffle, slides the pack over to God and says, cut. I'm in the middle of a winning streak. And God looks at him with a sad smile, gently pushes the deck away and says, maybe you're not. Maybe it just ran out. Do you see what Jesus is saying in this parable? He's saying that as far as the Pharisee's ability to win a game of justification with God is concerned, he's no better off than the publican. As a matter of fact, the Pharisee is worse off. Because while they're both losers, the publican at least has the sense to recognize that fact and trust God's offer of a free drink. The point of the parable is that they're both dead. And their only hope is someone who can raise the dead. So here's the thing, church. What if all of our negative obedience, I didn't do that. And what if all of our legalistic obedience, well, I did do this. And what if all of our comparative obedience, 
at least I'm not like him or her. What if all of that over months and years and decades in the Christian life begins to blind us to the only obedience that actually matters? Gospel obedience. Resting and depending on Jesus Christ. One of the old Puritans, Stephen Charnock, he wrote, a proud faith is as much a contradiction as a humble devil. (laughs) And that's exactly right. You cannot rest on your own merits and Jesus' merits at the same time. Okay. But here's, here's the sting. Because up to this point, we sort of knew all this, right? Even when you were a kid, you knew that if another, another kid in Sunday school or class prays this way, it's kind of a lousy prayer. God, I thank you. I'm not like those other children. <laughs> Test cheaters, backbiters, nose pickers. <laughs> we know that's a lousy prayer, right? But here's the sting. If you are reading this parable and thinking that God is talking about somebody else, you're reading the parable wrong. If you are thinking right now, man, I am so glad I am not like that guy who is so glad that he is not like that other guy. You are that guy. (laughs) In fact, I feel the need to repeat that. If you are thinking, I am so glad I am not like that guy who's glad he is not like that other guy, you really are that guy. Listen, Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Christ knows that we like to imagine him saying, hey, you're not as good as some, you're better than most, but lucky for you, I grade on a curve, so come on in. We like to think that, which is why Jesus is telling this parable. The point is, when it comes to the Pharisee, we can't touch this guy. Everything this Pharisee does is better than what you do. And it still merits him nothing. Instead, our gaze gets directed to the sinner. Look at the Pharisee. Jesus shows us him. And he says, all right, now I want you to look at the sinner. And Capon writes it like this. Give this particular Pharisee all the credit you can. He is, after all, a good man. He's not a crook, not a time server, not a womanizer. He takes nothing he hasn't honestly earned. He gives everyone he knows fair and full measure, faithful to his wife, patient with his children, and steadfast to his friends. He's not at all like this publican, this tax farmer, who's the worst kind of crook, a legal one. A big operator, a mafia-style enforcer working for the Roman government to collect from his fellow Jews, mind you, from people whom the Romans might have trouble finding, but whose whereabouts he knows and whose language he speaks. All the money he can bleed out of him, provided only that he pays the authorities an agreed-upon flat fee. He's been living for years on the cream skimmed off their milk money. He's a fat cat who drives a stretch limo, drinks nothing but Shivas Regal. That's a really expensive whiskey for those of you who are particularly holy. (laughs) I had to look it up, of course. (laughs) And he never shows up at a party without at least two $500 a night call girls in tow. 
And so we, you know, we hear this parable, and we think to ourselves, well, for crying out loud, Jesus, how is that guy the model for us? Well, it's only this. He offers not a prayer of comparison, but rather a prayer for compassion. He offers not a prayer of comparison, but rather a prayer for compassion. It's verse 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector is standing apart, not because he's unworthy, not because he was better, rather, but because he was unworthy. And and he offers this, this unadorned, undecorated prayer. And if there's if there's one thing that we learned from our, our sermon series in Jonah, isn't it this? That God delights to show mercy. God showers compassion and it has no borders. Oh, see, if you're just kind of getting introduced to this gospel message, this, this good news of Jesus, you kind of got to understand that the whole kingdom of God, it's inside out. Those who think they're on the inside are more likely to be on the outside. Those who realize that they're on the outside have actually taken the first step to being on the inside. In the kingdom of God, the prerequisite for redemption is the recognition that I'm irredeemable. A guy named Cozy says the payment for sin is initiated by the declaration of bankruptcy. And the only way to be justified is to appeal to the judge who is just. So verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. A holy man goes to a holy place to do holy things, and he leaves unholy. (laughs) An unholy man goes to a holy place to do holy things, but he leaves holy. How is this possible? It's the doctrine of justification. The key is not within the Pharisee. It's within the publican. Key is not within the publican. It's within the judge. See, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm really, really glad you're here. And just beginning to, to kind of explore and try and figure this stuff out, I want to humbly offer you that this is a starting point. This is a pretty good starting point. Almost all our spiritual problems come from overestimating our personal righteousness and underestimating our personal God. Almost all of our spiritual problems come from underestimating our personal God and overestimating our personal righteousness. The Westminster Confession, this is back in the 1600s, it says it like this, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Faith in Christ. Well, what's faith in Christ? Faith is simply the hand of a child reaching out to receive the gift offered to it. Justification is the gift. 
whereby the divine judge declares to us that we are legally righteous. Theologians call this um, forensic justification. It's a, it's a divine verdict of acquittal. That you're innocent before God. I want you to keep a finger here if you would and flip forward to the book of Romans. We read this as our confession of faith just a few minutes ago. Romans is very different. Romans chapter three. It's a different genre than the parables, but it's kind of the same point. While you're turning there, um, understand the New Testament frequently, it describes, um, it uses vocabulary that is both legal and familial, right? So it talks about God as, as a judge, but then it pivots, and we realize that what we have is a divine judge who after he, he issues this verdict of you are innocent, he then takes off his courtroom robe, he puts on a ball cap, and he adopts us into his family. It was weird then and it's weird now that there would be a judge who does this. But this is the God we serve. This is the gospel. It kind of all happens at the same time. Adoption is next week. Justification is this week. So look at Romans 3. Drop your eyes to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a, what's that word? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift to the guilty. Therefore, if we try to achieve what we can only receive, it's tantamount to declaring Jesus, you are not enough. Flipping back to our text, this means that we have to get off the table the notion that the parable of the Pharisee and the publican is a moral lesson on the virtue of humility. That's not what it's about. This is a parable. It's instructing on the futility of religion. The idleness of the proposition that there is anything at all you can do to make yourself right with God. You got two men. You got two prayers. You got two destinations. One man went to brag, the other to beg. One was famous for his lifestyle, the other infamous for his sins. One offered comparison, the other offered confession. One brought contempt, the other sought compassion. One was self-assured, the other self-aware. But according to the last verse, only one of the two went home justified. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ does not make good people better. It makes dead people alive. And so we've been through every one of the verses, except one. I left out the first one, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I left out verse 9 because it's too dangerous for us to read at the front end. We read that one first and we're, we're immediately tempted to think that this parable is not really about us. But of course it is. 
So here's the good news. If you came to church this morning unrighteous, you can leave church this morning justified. Today, you can be declared innocent before Christ. How can this be? Well, God does impossible things for impossible people who know that they're impossible. (laughs) And so to to try and drive it home, I want to finish this way. There's an author, his name is Roy Clemens, and he rewrote this parable, but he put it into a, um, a more contemporary setting. So I want you to have a listen. Feel free to close your eyes if you want. I'll just assume you're staying awake. But just... Just let it soak in. Jack and Joe went to church one evening. Jack knew his way around. Well, he'd been brought up in the place, hadn't he? Sunday school from the age of three and all that. He knew his parents would be there too in one of the other pews watching him proudly. He wanted to make sure they saw him. So he walked right up to the front and sat in the first row. He bowed his head and shut his eyes for a few moments. He'd seen dad do that. He knew it looked holy. Jack, you see, took his religion very seriously. He carried a big Bible and knew all the latest music. He liked the image of being a highly principled young man too. Unlike many of his peers, he never drank or smoked. He was also extremely self-righteous about sex, no messing around behind the school. As Jack reflected on his life before the service began, he glowed with an inward satisfaction. How reassuring it was to know that you were a good Christian. Nothing to confess, nothing to feel ashamed about, nothing, oh good grief, it couldn't be. Out of the corner of his eye, he caught sight of a familiar figure who had just entered the church behind him. It's Joe, he thought incredulously. What on earth is he doing here? He's no right to come to church, the hypocrite. But if he had been able to read Joe's mind, he would have realized that precisely the same thoughts were going through Joe's head about himself. What right, Joe thought, did he have to be in church? He hadn't been in church for years. In fact, He felt thoroughly uncomfortable in the place. He kept looking around nervously. He was unsure where to sit or if there was some special ritual he should observe. Didn't Christians cross themselves before they sat down in church? Or was that Muslim? He really couldn't remember. In the end, he slid cautiously into the very back row. Oh no, he wailed inwardly. That's Jack in the front and he's seen me. I'll never live this down now. He crumpled up, his legs tucked under the pew, his head sagging down between his knees trying to hide. As you may have guessed, Joe was not the religious sort. He had a reputation as a bit of a troublemaker. If there was difficulty with the police, you could bet he'd be involved. Nicotine stained his fingers and there was a distinct smell of beer on his breath. In fact, he'd been in the bar down the road only 15 minutes before. Why on earth had he come to church? Was it because of the fight he'd had that morning at home, thrown out on his ear for stealing his mother's money again? Or was it a sense of humiliation as a result of Julie slapping him around the face last night and telling him in unambiguous four-letter words to get out of her life because she discovered he was also sleeping with Karen? Yes, it was both those things, and neither of them. Somehow, as he tried unsuccessfully to drown his sorrows in his drink, he'd been overcome with a sense of how dirty he was and what a mess he'd made of things. Suddenly, sitting in the back pew, Guilt and shame brought tears to his eyes, a blush to his cheek, and a lump to his throat. Oh God, he sighed quietly into clenched fists. Oh God, 
Have mercy on me. I tell you, it was Joe who went home justified that night, not Jack. Two men, two prayers, two destinations. And the question that we're left with here on Mother's Day, or really any day, have you ever called upon God for mercy the way that Joe did? The way that the tax man did? Listen, if your goal is to find a church that agrees with everything that you already believe and it affirms everything that you already do, my friend, you are not looking for your maker. You are looking for a mirror. But if you are prepared this day to confess, I have a great need for Christ, then I'm very pleased to tell you that there is a great Christ for your need. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shit.